You're listening to Making Global Learning Universal, conversations about engaging diverse perspectives, collaboration, and complex problem solving in higher education, on campus, online, in local communities, and abroad. I'm your host, Stephanie Dosher, Director of Global Learning Initiatives at Florida International University and co-author of Making Global Learning Universal, promoting inclusion and success for all. But I don't know if we were ever really as monolingual as we like to think, but I will say geography at a certain point, especially I think in the 20th century, the first half of the 20th century, people couldn't travel as they can today. We didn't have the telecommunications that we have today. So maybe there was that illusion of living in sort of an, an, an English-only world. I kind of think we've always been in an English-plus world. Mm. Maybe, though, just our public conversation has not been aware of it or chosen to address that. That was Kathleen Stein-Smith, Associate University Librarian and Director of Public Services at Fairleigh Dickinson University, Kathleen is a passionate language advocate and educator, and she possesses expert knowledge on the U.S. foreign language deficit and the role of multilingualism in global citizenship. I found our talk inspirational and highly informative. It is densely packed with practical ideas faculty and administrators across the institution can use to promote language learning for all. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the organizations, initiatives, and research reports Kathleen talks about in this episode. Today, I would really like to start with my most burning question, Kathy, which is your work in the field of language acquisition, language learning, global competencies. How does that intersect with your work as a librarian as at your institution? Could, could you kind of make the connection between those two things? Oh, you know, absolutely. I have worked as a librarian for decades in public libraries and in academic libraries. And um, what I find is that I actually use language every day, sometimes several times a day, sometimes many times a day, in uh, assisting students sometimes even in delivering um, a library instruction session, in talking to parents and talking with prospective students. And during my years in public libraries, um, I actually was um, very fortunate. Early on in my career, I was the very first um, bilingual public library director in my home state. And while there are many bilingual positions nowadays, um, at that time, that was really, I think, a very forward-looking decision made by my little hometown who recognized the need for library services and programming to all age groups, to little ones, to um, high school students, to senior citizens, in also in Spanish. And so that position was being bilingual in English and Spanish. And... Um, so in that position, which I occupied for almost a decade, I actually was um, uh, mandated and was able, was blessed to be able to uh, create a not only Spanish language collection, but Spanish language services and outreach to my community. 
So that was probably in terms of creativity, probably the most opportunity I've had as a librarian ever to truly be creative, to truly build something new and needed for my town, for my hometown, um, in terms of bilingual services. That's Now, I have to admit, after that, I, I went back to academic libraries, uh. and where I've been for decades. And um, it, I'm also blessed because uh, sometimes on um, my campus, which is really a typical campus, uh, it is like traveling the world. So on any given day, I can meet students from any variety of countries. Um, I've had the opportunity, certainly, to uh, speak Spanish to students, prospective students, parents, and also to work with um, the Spanish language programs um, at our university, uh, some that are traditional Spanish um, transition programs to English, and others that are focusing on uh, different groups of students, perhaps Generation 1.5. Um, so I've had that opportunity, but also I've met students from around the Francophone world. You know, not only students from, from France, but we've had students from Guinea, from Côte d'Ivoire, from, um, uh, from Quebec, of course, and from many other countries where French is either the official language or a very prevalent language. So I've been able to actually not, within the library setting, actually teach the language, but actually use the language to help people, which is kind of what I go to work every day hoping to do. That's okay. So you're tying, if I hear you correctly, you're tying kind of the mission of your work, which is to connect to people, connect people to information, and the utility of having that language facility to, to be able to, to fulfill your, your mission. Absolutely. And, and so that begs the question, which came first for you? The language learning, because you have your own facility with, with French and Francophone um, culture, and the librarianship, were you a librarian and then you, and then you said to yourself, I need to go and learn language, or were you more into languages and then found your way to librarianship? You know, I was from, from really from my earliest childhood, I was exposed to a multilingual environment uh, where I was raised in the New York area. Uh, I was raised in a, an, a community that was primarily Spanish speaking. Mm-hmm. So from my earliest experiences as a child in the park, I heard Spanish. Um, I liked it later on in school. I studied it. Um, I also had the opportunity at home. I had a, a, a grandma and a great aunt who spoke German to me. Now, and I confess, I really today, I speak very, very little German, but um, nature takes its way. The older generation passes. But um, I did take German for a while in school as well. Went to Deutsche Schule. Mm-hmm. But I took, had an opportunity in school to take languages like Latin and Italian growing up. And um, as a, a college student, um, I, was, um, I was a French major. And I had sort of what they called in those days an informal Spanish minor, mm-hmm. major. And, um, you know, then there were family vacations up to see friends in Quebec. So I heard lots of French. And so um, I did um, have at a certain point decide to go to Quebec to continue my studies based on, 
you know, my experience of Quebec, but also my desire to have a more, um, I guess, immersive French language experience. So I did an honors BA and a master's degree at Université Laval in Quebec City and um, worked for a while as a high school, middle school um, French and Spanish teacher. And um, at a certain point, um, my home state was, um, I guess, redoing its curriculum and foreign languages were not a requirement. And so I basically uh, was thinking about something else to do to Mm -hmm. earn a living. I was still very young starting out. And librarianship seemed to combine the best of both. Um, There are, it's it's a setting where you can work with students and help people. But also it's a setting where you have people speaking different languages and books written in all kinds of languages. And I was blessed um, while I was in library school. I went to Columbia and um, I was blessed. I was able to do my internship in a the branch of the New York Public Library that specialized in foreign language collections, um, providing those collections to the branch system. It's different now. This is a long time ago. But they had 84 languages in their collection, and the library staff there spoke all of them. Wow. And they were an impressive, impressive group of people to work with. So um, all the while, working in academic libraries um, early in my career and then really for the past um, 15 to 20 years, um, I've also taught languages as an adjunct. And so I'll teach language and culture classes. I've taught international film classes. I've taught, um, you know, classes about the languages used as they're used in diplomatic relations. And I've enjoyed doing that. And then at a certain point, my, uh, my university where I'm employed had for many years as their mission, um, um, the, 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 um, to, to be a leader in global education. Mm-hmm. And um, my institution was actually, to the best of my knowledge, was the very first institution to sign on to the UN academic impact. And so I thought, you know, what a wonderful opportunity. Um, I kind of had all these languages in my life, sort of coming and going at different times. What a wonderful opportunity to um, make uh, make my personal language life um, connect with the institutional mi- mission, which I believe in, wholeheart- believed in at that time and believe in still wholeheartedly. So I decided to do a doctorate, and my uh, field of research uh, for my dissertation was actually foreign language as a global competency. Okay. And um, while I have to admit it was an, a very interesting trajectory, while there is really so much data out there about how language can facilitate global communication, global understanding, um, can communicate um, effective problem solving in transnational settings. Nonetheless, um, there was not as much, sometimes not as much connectivity between uh, global educators and foreign language teachers as um, as probably as I had hoped or imagined. And so part of my work going forward has been to um, um, strengthen those connections and sometimes uh, create those relationships. 
I don't want to interrupt you, but I just want to tell you how fantastic it is that you're sharing your trajectory and drawing these connections between your work as a librarian, as a um, as a as a conduit, as a connector of of information, of disciplines, your work as a uh, as a language learner and language teacher, and then also the global piece. Um, it, my background. I don't know if I don't know that I've shared this with you, but I was actually a, a children's book librarian for six years, and our Office of Global Learning Initiatives was our first office was in the library, and I felt that it was so natural. It turned out that we had a, a university librarian yes. as one of the first global learning faculty members creating a course called How We Know What We Know, and he also became the chair of our Global Learning Curriculum Oversight Committee. We have a global learning librarian, and as it turns out, a librarian at FIU also started our now annual Language Day. So the the connections between global education, languages, and librarianship are, it makes sense to me and it's natural, but I, I, I hope that our conversation today, we can kind of shed some light on this so that our listeners, whether they're faculty, whether they're students, whether they're staff, can also think about how can we connect our work to the work of librarians. And I also hope that this will draw even more librarians to realize how much their their own growth, their development, their expertise can be brought to bear on a global learning initiative. You know, I did not know the piece of your background that you actually um, uh, were a librarian, are a librarian. Um, I had read about your role with the Global Studies um, Center. But um, I think it is so important uh, that we bear in mind that uh, languages are used um, certainly for communication and to express ideas. And um, ideas are best understood and, and this is no disrespect intended to translators. I'm a, a loyal member of the American Translators Association, but they are sometimes best conveyed and best understood and most meaningful when the, you do not have the veil of a translation, when you can read and appreciate the, the original. Um, I also think that um, in a role as an educator and as a librarian, um, sometimes all too often, research is restricted to those resources that happen to be in English. I mean, I know we have Google Translate and all kinds of translation softwares, but um, if you look at um, research that is um, promulgated in the Anglophone world, all too often the references are almost entirely in English. And there is a whole world of thought and of research and of creativity out there that if you don't think about the other languages that are on our radar, um, that you really, um, you unnecessarily, you shortchange yourself and you shortchange your, your research. Um, I know one of the most fascinating experiences that I had in working in a global learning setting was the MLO program, Many Languages, One World. And um, that program was an initiative of the UN Academic Impact and, um, and ELS. 
and ran for four years. And it basically, it was an essay contest where students from around the world, uh, anybody, full-time college or university student, wrote an essay on a theme related to the role of multilingualism in the development of global citizenship values and, and a global citizenship mindset. And we got fascinating essays came in from around the world and they were evaluated by people at the UN and at other places. And I typically became involved um, when I guess finalists were chosen. Mm -hmm. And so there would be Skype interviews with finalists. And that was just to ensure that I guess the finalists also had the oral and um, uh, conversational skills that they would need in presenting at the UN in the target language. But it was so interesting, eventually, I would get to meet the students, all of them, and then work specifically with the French language winners. Mm -hmm. And we would work um, on a U.S. campus, all living together um, for about a week, on presentations that the students would then deliver um, at the U.N. And they would either be on the principles of the academic impact or on the U.N. sustainable development goals. And there'd be an assigned goal, and the group would work together on that. And it was very interesting to observe, to be able to guide, but also to learn from these international students, wonderful students from everywhere, and how they approached research. And their approach to research um, was not necessarily um, targeting um, English language resources or or maybe their mother tongue resources, they had a truly global approach. Now, bear in mind these winners, I believe, if memory serves, the last time that they did a survey, I think the average was they, they spoke 4.1 languages each. Wow. So they were truly multilingual students. But I think moving forward in a globalized world where we have to communicate, um, and, and do research and solve problems like climate change and, and all the others, the complex issues. I think having that ability to communicate directly in a variety of languages and to also to access the best in terms of uh, information and research on any discipline, any subject area, is very important and something that possibly our American students, by and large, our U.S. students miss out on. I know right now, my own thinking is really, um, how can we um, mobilize, um, maybe mobilize isn't the right word, but how can we awaken and perhaps uh, encourage the conversation on language, possibly talking to people about global issues and global education, also possibly talking about people's own personal cultural identity. Mm -hmm. like what is my personal history? Um, where did I come from? My parents, my grandparents, my family. And that could take you to certainly languages, either um, Native American languages, European languages, or, or um, languages from other parts of the world. And I think that's also a way tying our heritage to the world uh, might be a way to also awaken that interest among 
our students, their parents, their communities, you know, our society generally. Just now when you were art- when you were articulating some of the advantages that you saw that the students who participated as finalists in the in the UN project had their ability to access information that others who did not have the same language facility it was a gap for them it was almost like it, it was a part of the world was dark to them the way you describe that really gets right at kind of our thinking about the need for language facility, multiple language facility brought to bear on solving and analyzing complex problems. So we we mm-hmm. define global learning as a process that involves diverse people collaboratively analyzing and addressing mm-hmm. complex problems that transcend borders. And so language facility is needed not just to engage in that collaborative process to be able to communicate and exchange information, but also to access information that can be brought to the table. What I just heard you saying, because the neck that begs the question of, do individuals need multiple language facilities, or do we need multiple individuals working on the same problem to have the the facility amongst them or is it something kind of both like why why do we need one individual this is a genuine question that I have why would we need Mm -hmm. one individual to have access to multiple languages within themselves versus gathering many people around the table who speak different languages and are able to bring what they know to the table and and use things like Google Translate or or translators what are the advantages for an, a person to for themselves not to be monolingual you know um it's in, that's a, that's a great question um it's something i think about a lot and um actually so have a lot of other people i mean personally i just think life is much more interesting hmm. that and it's a lot more fun because you can have good times, you can appreciate music, you can uh, get out there and you can read poetry, you can participate in conversations that may not be in your mother tongue. But I'm just one person. But there's really a whole literature out there about the benefits of language. And certainly foreign language educators and others have talked about this. Psychologists have done their work. Neuroscientists have done this work. And I mean, if you want to talk about the benefits to the individual of being bilingual or multilingual, whichever term you prefer, um, I mean, there are certainly personal benefits, cognitive benefits, um, bilingualism, a use of more than one language. I won't say bilingualism, but regular use of more than one language Mm -hmm. has been shown to help to stave off dementia. Um, There's a literature that, that links multilingualism with creativity, with creative problem solving, with rational decision making, um, with tolerance uh, for ambiguity, uh, comfort rather than fear in unfamiliar situations. I mean, the and the benefits go on and on. And they come from a variety of disciplines, all of this research. Mm-hmm. You know, it's neuroscientists, it's language educators, it could be people in the world of diplomacy and international affairs. Um, so, I mean, the benefits are, are there. 
one thing though that I observed among I observed it among the students on my campus, mm-hmm. but I also observed it among the MLO winners, is that a conversation might start between maybe two students, young people, and then somebody else will come along, and the con- the language of the conversation shifts. It goes from language one to language two, and then maybe a few additional people come by and it will go into some language that might serve as a lingua franca for them. Mm-hmm. Could be English, could be Spanish, could be French, whatever. And then as the group um, evolves, you know, either it's students in the library or students walking around campus or MLO students socializing, um, that ability to be fluid um, enables really a broader conversation, Mm. more ideas into the mix. What you're saying reminds me of an episode of the Durrells in Corfu, (laughs) which is on PBS. Uh (laughs) And I was watching it this past Sunday. And the, the daughter of the family is traveling by train from England back to Greece. And she enters into the train car. And there are already in the car, I think, four or five different people. So she says, hello, to the person sitting next to her. And he answers back, hello, but in Italian. And she looks around the car, and she is making this judgment based on people's appearances, based on the way they're dressed. But she proceeds to say hello to each of the different people in the car using a different language, German, Greek, and Spanish. And then she makes the comment, oh, how very European. She's, she has a big <laughs> smile on her face, right? The fact that she's in this car with all of these people and she has a basic facility to at least be able to say hello to everyone. And this is taking me also back to your own trajectory. You, or trajectory. You said that one of the things that had an impact on you was growing up in New York. And you, your ears were comfortable. Your ears were used to hearing lots of different languages. In Miami, that's also similar. L.A., maybe Boston. Maybe there are other small towns increasingly around the U.S. where that's the case. But there's mm-hmm. still a lot of the U.S. where people are simply not used to hearing in their ears other languages. I, I wonder if you have any comments about that? Like how, how, how we can kind of close the gap in, in places where people's ears just aren't used to hearing different sounds? You know, I think you really um, raise an extremely important point. And, um, you know, I think for a big part of our history that, um, that um, distance from places where other languages were spoken um, played an important role. But you do have to think about it. If you look at the history of our country, um, bilingual education and multilingualism, it's not as new a concept as we think. Mm. If we go back um, to the 19th century, for example, um, there were bilingual schools out in um, the Midwest, um, they were schools that functioned in German and other languages. And um, so I, I think sometimes we, we 
oversimplify. We sort of look maybe at a version of America that we have that might be a snapshot and also that might be a version of America that we were taught. Children growing up in the United States, traditionally, um, when you learned about American history, you typically did learn about it through the lens of our past as a British colony Mm -hmm. and our de facto official language, although not an official official language, of English. And I'm not sure that that ever really the fact that you don't, you've never heard other languages or you don't frequently hear other languages, I'm not, number one, I'm not sure that that is actually as true a representation of the U.S. Mm-hmm. as we might think it is. I think there have been other languages here for a long time. Much of our, our, South, our Southwest for, I guess, 400 years there certainly has been a strong presence of Spanish mm-hmm. in much of New England, Louisiana, the Mississippi Valley. Um, there were the strong presence of French. And then more recently in the 19th century, certainly what sometimes I know I've heard referred to as the German belt in mm-hmm. this country. Number one, I don't know if we were ever really as monolingual as we like to think. But I will say geography at a certain point, especially I think in the 20th century, the first half of the 20th century, people couldn't travel as they can today. We didn't have the telecommunications that we have today. So maybe there was that illusion of living in sort of an an English-only world. I kind of think we've always been in an English-plus world. Mm. Maybe, though, just... Our public conversation has not been aware of it or chosen to address that. Well, I was wondering, like, because I know that you're very concerned with closing this this language gap. Is is that something that you think um, is really needed in terms of our public conversation, whether that public conversation is the public conversation of the classroom, of the university, of a small community? We may not have the control over the national conversation, but to the extent that we have control over our local conversation or we can contribute to or or influence our our local conversation, would you say that that kind of public advocacy for multilingualism, inviting um, other linguistic uh, traditions into that public conversation, is that part of what we need to, to close this gap? I absolutely believe that. Um, foreign language educators have done a wonderful job for uh, as far back as I've read, at least the past 60, 50 years. Foreign language educators and their professional associations have done a wonderful job. They're dedicated professionals. Their organizations are wonderful advocates at the national, the state, the local level. Um, there's a national campaign right now uh, launched by ACTFUL. Uh, which is called Read with Languages. They've done really a great job. But I do think um, we, as foreign language educators, that we need the help of the broader society. Um, We need partners, we need collaborators, we need potential allies. And I I think um, probably a core group 
that I'm not sure that as educators we, we have spoken to enough uh, are parents and communities. Mm. Um, there's nobody who loves their child more than the parent. And languages, language learning, cultural learning, there, there is no disadvantage for a child in learning another language or more than one language from the earliest grade level. Um, there is nothing really that's been scientifically demonstrated. It's only beneficial to the child. Mm-hmm. I think when parents understand that, they, in, at, at the local level, can begin to be very powerful advocates for their children. Um, their advocacy is based in love, and it could be nothing more powerful than that. Um, not all parents are aware of the fact that knowing one or more additional languages is beneficial um, in so many ways. So I think reaching out to parents uh, and communities where other languages may be spoken or where Anglophone parents might be desirous of um, their child having an additional advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's even research um, that will show that bilingualism especially benefits our um, lowest income children that um, and there have been several studies done on that Mm -hmm. so I think bilingualism is good for the heritage language learner the globally minded internationally minded parent um, and also for the parent which is really all parents who want their child to have a better life than they have Mm -hmm. Um, and I think what you said about starting at the local level is very, very important. We can all do that. We can all be active in our community. Um, we can organize um, an international fair. We can organize a language table at our library. We can um, work through our organizations um, to bring other languages into our conversation. Um, at the same time, though, we do have to be involved in the political conversation. And, you know, sadly, there's the old saying, if you're not uh, at the table, you're on the table. Mm-hmm. And that's a reality that I think all, I mean, a global educators, foreign language educators, I mean, everybody generally, you have to be part of that conversation. And I think all of um you know, so many of our, our state associations have advocacy uh, committees and public advocacy committees. I've heard dedicated educators talk about um, postcard campaigns, uh, letters to elected officials, mm-hmm. and all of that is needed. And also, I do think we have to get behind our national campaign. Uh, we do. Um, uh, there is ACTFL that represents foreign language educators um, nationally. Uh, there's also a JNCLN CLIS that um, is actually a lobbying organization also in Washington that represents both language educators and also other language em- em- enterprise stakeholders, like including language services companies, for example. Um, and I think we do have to act at all levels. The problem is, um, time. Right. You know, your typical foreign language teacher teaches all day, meets with students, meets with parents, has extracurricular activities, has only 24 hours in the day. 
And I think that is where um, organizations can help. Um, for example, in the AATF, we have the Commission on Advocacy, and it's a great group of people. Mm-hmm. And maybe we're at the point in our careers that we have a little bit of time that we can devote to getting the word out, providing information, writing letters that maybe the busy classroom teacher can, doesn't have and cannot do. Mm-hmm. But everyone can do something. And, you know, you can um, attend a meeting. You can start a Facebook page or blog. You can, um, if you're so inclined, you can certainly um, become a change agent. You can run for your local school board at that, at that local level. Are you, aware, are you aware of any student advocacy efforts? Because so far we've been talking a lot about, you know, administrators, government, non-government. Yeah, but, but are, 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 to what extent are students advocating or have they been, you know, supported to advocate for themselves? <clears throat> you know, I, I often read in my own, just my own local area, about recent school graduates, recent high school graduates running for local board of education. Mm. Now, for example, that's certainly a form of public advocacy. Um, I know, for example, in, um, at, in higher education institutions, there are student government organizations. There are all kinds of student groups who certainly can advocate. Um, I think students really Parents and students are your most um, powerful advocates mm-hmm. in the sense that they are really, parents certainly are, are, are speaking out of love for their child. But a student, um, it's so important to listen to students. They will often tell you what you need if only you will listen. Right, right. And, and I do think that students have the potential to become powerful advocates for languages. Um, I'm sure there are um, cases where um, languages, uh, students have requested it. Students also vote with their feet. If a new language is offered and students register for it, that language is going to stay on that campus. I'm thinking about faculty who are listening to this podcast. A lot of our listeners are classroom teachers, um, they're working in disciplines, they're not teaching languages, but can you recommend any ways that a faculty member in almost any discipline might be able to bring languages, uh, elevate the issue in their own courses? Oh, you know, absolutely. There is just so much that a faculty member can do. I mean, there are, I mean, very you know, obvious, uh, easy things to do, simple things to do, Um, organizing a trip, organizing internships abroad for students. But also, there are things that you can do that don't involve travel because not every student has means to travel. Um, It's so easy for faculty members to talk to each other, to talk to colleagues in another discipline, to perhaps add, you know, if there's the flexibility, let's just say you're teaching a three, 
a three credit class in healthcare administration. Okay, you could add an additional credit, for example, for students who um, engage in discussions, for example, of reading in one or more target languages. Uh-huh. Um, about, for example, I don't know, the role of, of French in global healthcare throughout the Francophonie. Um, you could be teaching a marketing class or a business management class, and you could bring in German or Spanish or Chinese. You could partner with a language professor and perhaps have an additional four-credit module where students will read and discuss and do research using a different language that has relevance to the discipline. You know, obvious partners, I'm thinking of history and art, but it works across the disciplines. Healthcare, uh, engineering, it can work. Um, that is certainly something that faculty members can do. They can talk together and work out the specifics of a model that interests them. I know there's an interesting organization. It's called CLAC, Cultures and Languages Across the Curriculum. Uh-huh. They, they, have, they talk about, they have wonderful things going on. Um, you can encourage double majors. Mm. Um, for example, a student that may arrive at the college or university level, perhaps very strong in a foreign language that they either speak or they've studied in high school, but wanting to major in another field, double majors. Um, actually, according to the MLA, foreign languages are, I think, the single most popular double major out there. There are also joint programs, and they can be um, five-year programs, perhaps leading to uh, a master's degree in international relations, but also with a foreign language major or a world language major, whichever term you prefer. Um, there, there are a lot of things that faculty can do um, in their role, well, as individuals talking to each other and developing interdisciplinary collaborations. Mm -hmm. There are also these other types of things that faculty can do in their role in um, university and college governance. And that leads me to this, um, and I know I, I, I never like to really talk about languages in any type of coercive way, because it truly is a gift to have another language or other languages in your life. But nonetheless, uh, faculty members can certainly uh, talk about foreign language requirements. Mm -hmm. Now, at, in the most recent um, MLA report on the requirement that I've seen, about half of colleges and universities have a foreign language requirement. Um, according to, um, there's an active survey, a smaller sample size, that actually puts that at about 12%. So faculty who want to strengthen languages on their campuses can certainly also strengthen and enforce existing foreign language requirements. Um, so you know, they report that... Um, just if I may finish, we'll just no, go right story. ahead. Uh, the, re the, the report that um, recently came out from the MLA, um, they did their enrollment survey, which typically, I guess, comes out about every three years. And there was a report 
the preliminary report was issued, I think it was in 2016, and noted some um, uh, decline in enrollment in foreign languages. And the final report, the full report, was issued um, in the middle of this year. And actually that report um, found that there were really in the midst of a, dec a decline overall, but there were programs that were really being very successful. And now, and now this part, this is my opinion, this is not the MLA, but um, in my thinking, it was programs that followed the recommendations of the MLA report, the 2007 report, Foreign Languages and Higher Education. Um, the, the two recommendations from that report were to stress trans, translingual and transcultural competence. And the other recommendation that I cite is to offer multiple pathways to the major. Now, programs that have done this, offering multiple pathways, whether through double majors, interdisciplinary collaborations, five-year master's programs, whatever it might be, they've tended to be among the more successful. Now, this is, is as I say, this is my, my impression from the reading of the report and my following of the news of what is going on. That was really an important point because um, curriculum design, the multiple pathways in, we can have an an upswelling or even a, a, you know, a majority of our faculty may really want in terms of governance to, to make a requirement, but it's a, it can be a design issue, right? So we need multiple ways in, but we also have to think about the way out for students in terms of graduation requirements. So in our state, and or, which is Florida, and I know in a number of other states, we have these performance funding frameworks under which our institutions are operating. And our institution, as well as all of the other state universities in Florida, are it's really incumbent upon us to get students in and out as soon as as soon as we can. And for that reason, reason, there's been a negative pressure or there's been a pressure to get rid of language requirements. It slows people down, especially those students who are in the STEM disciplines. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious when you were talking about it needing to be a, a really a, a, a multi party advocacy effort. I'm curious if anyone is advocating to the state legislature this perhaps unintended consequence that will have negative blowback on our state's economy. I mean, we're, we are at a global crossroads. We need people to have their degrees, but we also need these hard skills of language and cultural competence in order to create political, social, and economic relationships with the countries with which we trade and do business. You know, I think you've really, I wish I could have expressed that point as well as you did. Um, I think that's really very valid. And there are actually two, I think, questions. The first question is the relationship of foreign language skills to the workplace. Mm -hmm. And there have been, I mean, there's a lot of information out there. There are two wonderful reports. There's a report, uh, Not Lost in Translation, 
that was uh, published by the um, New American Economy in 2017 found that demand for foreign languages had doubled in the five-year period between 2010 and 2015. And then the ACTFL report that was published just, um, I guess it was May or June, June, I think, of 2019, um, making languages our business, pointing out to the need for languages. And it's not just one language and it's not just one career area. Both of these reports find me it's many languages and it's all kinds of jobs and in all um, parts of the country. You know, you can look at statistics on the 11 million or so U.S. jobs that depend on foreign exports. You can look at the um, over half a million Americans who work in the U.S. for multinational corporations. There are, um, there are wonderful figures out there. And I know I, I have a colleague on the AATF Commission on Advocacy, um, uh, Dr. Bob Peckham. Uh, he is really a master at finding these wonderful statistics for, and diving deep into even very, very local, um, local data. So, yes, I think that is really an argument that can be made. And I think it is being made. You know, part of what I do um, as a, a language advocate, um, I go to as many um, uh, gatherings of foreign language educators as I can. Mm -hmm. Because I like to talk to people in different parts of the country and hear what their concerns are and also hear what their ideas are. But the concerns are different in different states. As you say, there are different state legislatures and legislative frameworks. And what I find is what I'm hearing is that in really quite a few states, the um, state professional language associations, they are going to their state capitals, and they are making their case. And I think that's wonderful. Um, personally, I sometimes also just, me being me, um, I like to take a long-term um, viewpoint. And I think while we have to do all of these things now, today, and all of us, advocacy is a broad umbrella. I mean, there's room for every voice. There's room for every interest, every subject interest, every specific language or grade level uh, interest. But I think we have to look to the future. And I think the, a way of, of addressing this need to have students comp complete college in a certain number of semesters and be um, ready for the, the career market, um, the workplace, um, I think is this whole idea of an early start to foreign language education. Mm -hmm. You know, we've talked about it, foreign language educators call it FLES, foreign languages in the elementary school, and that's traditional, learning a language as a subject. Um, that we also talk about immersion. We talk about dual language immersion. We talk about really K-12 or pre-K-12. And I think looking to the future, how great it would be if as many students as, as we're interested, if all our students had the opportunity to start studying one or more languages when they're at an early age, that means they have certainly more years in school to develop proficiency and fluency. 
they also um, they have certain um, uh, uh, native abil- abilities to learn a language in different ways that we don't have as we grow older, although we can always learn another language. But I think that idea of, of giving children the opportunity, all children in public schools, not just opportunities for certain select groups of children, I think is important because then if you look down the road 12 years later, you are going to have students entering college who are going to have proficiency. Whether you would use the European or the actful terms to describe proficiency, uh, intermediate high, whatever that might be, um, or who have fluency. Then actually at the college level, imagine when you're talking to faculty, the possibilities then increase exponentially because the students are arriving at about age 18 with proficiency and fluency, and they can use that language to do things, to um, join a volunteer program, to help someplace in the world. I mean, many students come to me, they want to do things, go places and change the world and help the world, but they don't really have the language skills to do it. Mm-hmm. And while you can learn a language beginning in college, you can do it successfully. It's going to take a little bit longer. You have other pressures. You know, there is always the credit load, the course load, the major courses, time to graduation, time to the workplace. Um, but if you had that language skill by the time you arrived on the college campus, what courses, all the things that could be offered and could be done and the collaborations and the partnerships and the joint programs, um, it would really be, you know, radically um, different from what it is today. So I think also educators at all levels, you know, even those who are in the colleges and universities should actually be worrying and, and advocating for the youngsters who right now are in preschool because that is the future and that opens the door to amazing possibilities. Just by way of closing, because possibilities is a perfect way for us to um to, to, to close our conversations today. Um, so on that note of the possibility for the future, Kathy, can you recommend any resources, any experiences, any books, films, artworks, songs, anything that you can imagine that could help spark that passion for uh, for other languages, for learning other languages, for hearing other languages, for teaching them, anything that has been specifically or particularly transformative for you that you might recommend to others? You know, absolutely. And I think that is the whole key to the question. And I'm so glad you asked it. You know, one everybody is different. We all have different uh, interests. We all have different goals. And One thing I often hear from people who, students and other people who travel, they'll often say, oh, I went to whatever destination X and I was so bored. And I'm thinking, how could you be bored? All right. And then they go on and they say, oh, well, we spent the whole time going to museums. Or conversely, we spent the whole time at the beach or we spent the whole time um, touring. And the, the point of it all is that every language and every culture 
has everything for everybody. Languages and cultures are the quintessential examples of interdisciplinarity. They are life. And what I always say to students at the end of a class, and um, there's an interesting author, his name is Livermore, and he has a concept called cultural intelligence. And it's got four quadrants. And the second quadrant is knowledge, okay? And, but then the quadrants three and four really concern execution and strategy. And what I'll often say to them at the end of the course is, well, you know, we've had our 15 weeks together and now we're not going to be seeing each other anymore. I mean, you can always come and see me. I'll be on campus, but we're not going to be meeting to talk about these interesting issues. So what can you do? It's pointless if you just came to class for 15 weeks and then that's it. The thing is you want to continue learning about other languages and other cultures. And, of course, um, you can travel, you can study abroad, you can look for a, a job abroad or a volunteer opportunity, you can join the Peace Corps. These are all wonderful ways to do that. But what if that's not necessarily something that you can do right now? Well, you can make other languages and other cultures part of your daily life. It is really so easy. You know, um, you can get up in the morning and listen to a news report in another language or about another part of the world. You know, there's lots of news, international news, even if you don't have a language, there's lots of international news that's available in English. If you have another language, even better. You can certainly um, learn another language. You can, um, you, there are ways to learn languages online. You do it basically at your time. There are apps, there are local language tables, local meetup groups to learn languages. Um, that if, if the language learning is what's interesting to the person. And then, uh, honestly, you can certainly read. You can read about whatever it is about another culture that interests you. You know, getting back to the people who go touring, I'll often find that the person who spent the whole time on the beach never goes to the beach when they're at home. They go to museums, they go to galleries, they go to lectures. But they didn't do that when they went to their tourist destination. The person who loves sports, for example, why not if you're traveling or if you're sitting at home, you can see all of these things on broadcast and online media. Follow the sports in another country. Follow the food scene. Follow the art scene. Um, I attended a great session last week at a state conference about learning a language through art. And art was the broad definition. It included graffiti. Um, you know, whatever it is that you personally are interested in, that exists in other cultures. Kathy, I, I think love that's that. that's the way to start. I love that. I love Thank how you, you just made that connection that it's we're learning about others, but we don't have to necessarily learn about other things. We can start with the things that we care about and simply mm -hmm. explore those things in other cultures, in other languages, that the way in to others is through ourselves. 
I, and college professors can even design travel studies on a variety of different themes. I love that. Yeah, why not have uh, a study abroad that just has that has to do with just sport, um, has to do with uh, fashion, whatever it is, politics, whatever it is that a particular person or group is interested in. Those are all. I think they're they're wonderful pathways for everybody into uh, cultural awareness. Fantastic. I think that's a terrific way to, a, a terrific note to leave our listeners with that uh, the way to others is kind of through ourselves. I so appreciate you spending some time talking with me today, Kathy, and, and answering some of my, maybe they sound silly questions, but, um, but not but at all. Super important to me. I really, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you much. Thank you so much, Stephanie. And, you know, keep up the good work. Thanks for listening to this episode of Making Global Learning Universal. This podcast is brought to you by FIU's Office of Global Learning Initiatives, Media Technology Services, and our Disability Resource Center. You can find all our episodes, show notes, transcripts, and discussion guides on our webpage, globallearningpodcast.fiu.edu. And if this episode was meaningful to you, please share it with colleagues, friends, and students. You can even give it a rating on iTunes. Thanks again for tuning in and for all you do to make global learning universal.